Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. If you would please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 4 through 17. The sermon will come uh, primarily on Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, but we'll read all the way to 17. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord had not for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth, of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second is the Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the, of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. go before our Heavenly Father again in prayer. O oh, Father, as we come to this passage which describes the paradise which you had made for us in the Garden of Eden, the place where we were to dwell with you forever, which was lost by the fall and yet restored even to greater heights in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, open up our eyes to see the beauty and the glory of this which was our beginning and which was our purpose, our, our goal. Help us to see its glory, Lord, that we might know the heights from which we have fallen and get a glimpse of the heights to which we have been restored in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, very often when a man wants to marry a woman, 
he will do various things to prepare for bringing him, bringing her into his home. He will get a place ready for her, and there will be a time then after the wedding when she will go and live with the man. It's a very common thing that that people do. There is a sense in which the man feels an obligation, and rightfully so, to care for his new bride, and he wants, as he begins his life with her. He wants her to know that there is a place which she has prepared for her and for them to live together. It's a time of great excitement. The preparations are made, and the place is great because of the fellowship which the man will have with his bride. This is really the picture that we have here of God preparing a place for man to dwell with him in the Garden of Eden. This is particularly the place which God had prepared for man to dwell with him in this kind of fellowship, this very close and intimate relationship. And this is what follows then on the, the chapter that we've been looking at for some weeks, uh, weeks past, Ch- Genesis chapter 1, the creation account, which ended with the Sabbath day. We had looked at how last week how that creation account ends with God's sanctifying time. That there is a holy time which God has made for man to dwell with him. A special time which is set apart to that end. And here we have a description not of the time, but of the particular place which God had designed and created for man to dwell with him. Here, just like in Genesis chapter 1, the whole point of the account is to show that man's purpose is to dwell with God. Here we have, not just by the sanctification of time, but also by God's making a garden. For man to live in, to walk with him in, God's preparation of a place for man to dwell with him, showing again that that God has created you to have fellowship with him in paradise. God has created you to have fellowship with him in paradise. Now we'll look at this world, at this uh, passage under uh, three headings. First in verses four through six, we'll look at the world before Eden what it was like before God had actually created this garden for man to dwell in. Then in verse 7, we'll look at the creation of man to dwell in the garden. And then in verses 8 through 15, a description of the garden itself. So we have what everything was like before uh, Eden, the creation of man to dwell in the garden, and then a description of the garden itself. And we'll see from the whole thing that, that Moses is trying to teach us that God has created us to have fellowship with him. And any time that we're not with God in that kind of fellowship, whenever that fellowship is severed and we do not have access to God, we are not in the state in which God has created us for. We are not fulfilling the purpose for which we have been created. So look with me again then at verses 4 through 6. You'll notice particularly in verse 4 that there is um, this... This heading, which actually in the book of Genesis becomes a way that the entire book is divided. It says in verse 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. Some translations will say these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And this is a recurring phrase that Moses uses at various parts in the book of Genesis. It's used a total of 10 times to divide the book into the various sections. It's the way that Moses uh, divides uh, the material of this particular book. And what we see here then with with, uh, verse 4 in particular 
is that we have in chapter 1 the creation of all things, and, and it's divided into the, the seven different days of creation, with the seventh day being a particular day of rest. But here we have in, day, in verse 4 of chapter 2, we have really a zoom lens that looks into day 6. All of chapter 2 is really a fuller description of what is happening on the sixth day of creation. And this is really what verse 4 is functioning as, the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God created them. Now, there are a number of questions that comes when we look particularly at verses 5 and verse 6. There are those who will say that uh, verse, because verse 5 says, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, they'll say that because verse 5 says this, then this must be speaking of day 3 of creation, since that's when uh, the plants of the ground were created. And then they'll want to say that there is a tension in the narrative because man is then created, and then it's after man's created that then the herbs of the ground are able to grow. And so they'll say, well, on in chapter 2, man is created before the plants, but in chapter 1, the plants were created before man. So which is it? Is there a contradiction in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2? Well, clearly we'd have to say that this is not a contradiction. The plants and the herbs which are mentioned in, in the fifth verse of chapter 2 do not refer to uh, the creation of the plants as such, but rather their ability to thrive. And particularly what we see from the rest of the context is their, their ability to thrive in a garden, in the Garden of Eden. And this, of course, makes sense from verses 5 and 6. It would be kind of foolish for us to say that the creation of plants and herbs are dependent upon man being there to work them. That man has no ability to create plants or herbs. And so it's not that these things were not created until man was created, but it's rather that they were created but could not thrive until man was placed on the earth in order to cultivate them. And there was no sense in which they thrived, and especially no sense in which they thrived in the garden without man. Now, this brings us to a, a very important point, which is very often missed today, which is that the earth itself today is very often seen as pristine as long as man is not working it. That the most pristine and perfect parts of the earth are those parts which man has not touched. Now, of course, there is a great natural beauty to all the things that God has created, and those things ought to be preserved. But there is also a sense in which the earth cannot be complete without the work of man on it. God has created the entire world to be dependent upon man in this regard. And so we have some of the more extreme statements of the environmentalists who want to say that everything that man does to the earth is going to cause the earth to fall apart, when actually the opposite is true. The earth was created to be dependent upon man. It's not, it wasn't created so that the creation of itself would be dependent upon man, as if it were a contradiction of day three. But it is created to be dependent on man in such a way that the earth cannot thrive. Think about this. The earth cannot thrive without the work 
of man upon the earth. We were meant to build things upon this earth, and those things which we make are good. They're not inherently evil just because man is making them. Now, we would have to say then that there is no contradiction between chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, but we can ask another question, and that is, why is it that verses 5 and 6 are in, uh, in this narrative? What is, the, what is the purpose and the function of verses 5 and 6? Why does Moses go out of his way to point out this, uh, this inadequacy of the plants before man had been made? Well, remember in the context, as I've alluded to, the whole point of this narrative is to describe the place which God had created for man to dwell with him. And it's important for us to recognize then that before God had created man, there was no point for God to make a Garden of Eden. I think that's the point of verses 5 and 6. Just like in chapter 1, verse 2 of the creation account where God uh, creates all things in verse 1, but then, but then points out, that the earth was formless and void and there was darkness. These are the initial starting conditions, the inadequacies that were uh, initially put on, on the earth that are going to be addressed throughout the whole creation account. So too here, Moses begins with a description of the world before man and before the garden to show the very things that are going to be addressed with, with this particular account. That is to say that there, is, there was no garden because there was no man. There was no man to work the garden. And God had not yet done the particular actions that he needed to do to create this particular garden. And these are the very things that are going to be addressed. And just like in the first chapter of Genesis, these initial starting conditions, so to speak, these, these, uh, these particular problems that are going to be addressed in the course of the narrative, they are meant to make a theological point, and that is this. There is no need for a garden if there is no man. The garden was made for the sake of man. When there was no man, there was no garden. There were no trees that would be able to be described as pleasant and a delight to the eyes. There was no tree of life. There were none of these things because God had not seen any need to create those things at that point and because there was no man to enjoy them. And so we have then uh, the two particular things which will be addressed, the two particular uh, issues which are addressed in the rest of the narrative, which are that there is a need for God to plant a garden, and there is a need for man to work that garden. The first of these, or really the second of these, is addressed in verse 7, where God actually creates man. This is... Uh, as I said, a zoom lens on day six of creation. Day six is the particular day in which God created man. It's the longest day that's described in chapter one, and it also gets a very extended treatment in chapter two. Notice the way that God creates man in verse seven. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Here we have a description of the creation of man in two parts. God creates the body of man from the dust of the ground, the dust of the earth, and then he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and thereby creating his soul. This shows very clearly that we have been created with these two particular parts. 
body and soul. Notice the emphasis that's placed uh, on the creation of man's body in verse 7. Notice it says that man was formed from the dust of the ground. Uh, I think the, the main thing that's being emphasized here is the humility that we ought to have. There is a very real sense in which we have been, we are the most prized of everything which God has made. We are the only things which God has made to be in his image. We're the only ones that have been created in the very image of God and to have that special kind of fellowship with him. But notice, our bodies yet were taken from the ground. They're just dust. God formed it with nothing special. It's, it's simply dust. And this ought to cause us to have a very great humility before God. We do not deserve any of the things that we have. God's the one that made us. And he really even gave us a great evidence of the humility that we ought to have by indicating to us that we are nothing but dust. And even after the fall, when, when God uh, cursed Adam, he says, you are made of dust and to dust you will return. Now, there's nothing to indicate here that by because man was made from the dust that he must return to the dust before the fall. But there is still that, that same kind of uh, that emphasis that we are a humble creation because we are nothing but dust. And after the fall, our, our dependence upon the ground and our relationship to the ground can be seen in this fact that when we bury the dead, they do return to the dust. And the body does decompose, and it becomes indistinguishable from the dust. This, uh, I think, is the reason why the psalmist in Psalm 8 can speak the way he does. He says, when I look at the stars, the heavens, all these heavenly bodies which you have set into place, I think, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you created him? You made him a little lower than, than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. That is to say, when I look at all the things which you have made, and then I look at ourselves, I, I realize that in a very real sense, there are things that outwardly may even appear to be more glorious than we are. We, we are a, a humble group. And God, in the psalmist, then becomes amazed that God would bestow such grace and favor upon those who are simply dust and ashes, that he would crown dust and ashes with his image, and that he would even give to them rule over all of the things of the earth. There is, uh, there is a humility that we must recognize because we have been made from the dust. And even the word man bears this out. The word man in Hebrew is the word Adam, where we get the word Adam. The word ground is Adama very clearly related. Man is, even by his very name, the one who is taken from the ground. He has a very special relationship to the ground. The ground itself is in some ways dependent upon him, and he himself is dependent upon the ground. And so there is a humility that we must have, and we must always remember because we are people who have been made of dust. But secondly, we also have souls. Notice the way Moses continues and breathe and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, there is some sense in which the breath of life is something that's common to all creatures. 
Um, when uh, Moses describes in Genesis chapter 7 uh, the destruction of all flesh, of all living flesh, through the flood, he uses this word, the breath of life, to describe not just man but even the animals. And so we have to say in some sense this can apply to all living creatures. But there is a distinction in that there never was this, this same sort of direct breathing into the nostrils of any other being the breath of life, the breath of God. This was where God breathed into man his particular and peculiar soul, which was distinct from all of the animals. This is, the, this is the, really the way in which God created man in his own image. And thus we have souls which cannot perish, souls which were made capable of having fellowship with God. And so we see then that we were created body and soul. And this is very important for us to remember, not only as we think about who we are as individuals, but even as we consider the salvation that is offered to us in the gospel. We were never meant to spend an eternity as disembodied spirits in a place that we may call heaven. Now, this is, of course, a true thing that we do spend a period of time uh, in heaven uh, as uh, souls which are separated from our bodies. But even here, and we do have to say with, with the Apostle Paul as well, that it is good for us that we would die, for to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's a gain for us if we are to die, to go to be home with the Lord. But even so, those who are dead, who are separated, their souls being separated from their bodies, are in a very real sense incomplete. They are awaiting something that is even greater. This is why, while at the same time there is a great glory to being with the Lord in heaven, there is in Revelation the description of the souls which are under the altar, which are crying out for God to hasten the day, to bring upon that day of judgment when they will be avenged, but also when they will receive their bodies back. This is the, the primary hope of the gospel. Think of it. If the Lord Jesus Christ could only win for us, a, an existence where we are separated from our bodies and in heaven as disembodied spirits, that we'd have to say that the salvation which we have in Christ is actually less than what Adam had in the garden because he got to have fellowship with God, body and soul. This is what death is. Death is a separation of the body from the soul. And anything that's going to be a true salvation must include a reunification of the body with the soul. Or we can think of it even a different way. How was it that the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered from death? Is his deliverance from death merely a being a soul which is, dis which is disembodied, separated from the body and experiencing the blessings of God? No, his resurrection was a bodily resurrection. All that we will experience as the salvation which we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, is first experienced by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We simply share in the blessings which he has gone before us and has experienced. Our resurrection will be like his. And if it is like his, then it must include the salvation of the body with the soul. And so this is something that's very important for us uh, to remember. The description of of how we were in the beginning is very informative for us to inform us how we will be in the end. 
That's something that we must always remember. How we are now is not how we were, and it's not how we will be either. We were made to live body and soul with God. And so this is the description that Moses has given to us of the creation of man in verse 7. But notice then, the bulk of this particular part of the narrative is the description of Eden itself, the garden which God had planted. And that comes in verses 8 through 15. Verses 8 and 15 uh, in particular are parallels. They both uh, say that God plants a garden and then he puts man there. uh, And everything in between is the description of the garden itself. There are three particular aspects to the creation of this garden that, that, uh, that we will be looking at and highlighting this morning. And they all have to do with um, the natural features of Eden itself. And we'll look at Eden in terms of its trees, its rivers, and then Eden as a mountain. So it's trees, its rivers, and then Eden as a mountain. Notice the trees are described, particularly in verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now this again is not the creation of the plants as on day three, but the particular creation and planting of trees for a particular garden. Which answers back to again in the narrative to the the, the problem introduced in verses five and six. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we have a number of things which are are indicated here. First, in this particular garden, every tree was beautiful. It was gorgeous. You think of the natural beauty of some trees. Uh, There are probably very few which can rival what, what we get here in California when we think of the redwoods and the sequoias that are all over the place, just these majestic things. So we know something of the natural beauty that comes with these sorts of things. And here we have God creating and planting a particular garden with the most beautiful of all of the trees. These trees were meant to be a delight as they were to be uh, representative of the place where God would actually have fellowship with man. The word Eden itself means pleasant. And so it's very fitting that everything in it would be pleasant. Now, there are two particular trees which are mentioned at the end of verse 9. The tree of life being in the midst of the garden or in the middle of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, in more detail next week as we consider uh, the particular the covenant of works which God had created with man in verses 16 and 17. But notice as well, the tree of life is there. This is something uh, which is developed throughout the Bible uh, as always being held out before the people of God as uh, the goal of salvation. That there would be a time when God would restore to the people of God the blessings which they had in Eden. Namely, the tree of life where they can have fellowship with God forever. And so we see even in the creation particularly of the tabernacle and the temple, uh, the, the menorah, which is uh, very likely to be a symbol of the tree of life. And even throughout all of the, the tabernacle and, and the temple, it was decorated with, uh, with images which would make you think of a garden, uh, fruits and trees bearing fruits. 
It's meant to be a picture of the salvation, which was to be restored to the people of God, and itself a picture of Eden. And then at the very end of the Bible, we have uh, the probably the clearest picture of the new heavens and the new earth. John describes that final resting place of God's people as a place where the tree of life is. The tree of life will be there. It will yield its fruit, and all the people of God will have eternal life, celebrating the fellowship of God, enjoying him for all eternity. This is, uh, this is what was held out to Adam in Eden. They were to, he was to have, he, he was to know that he would have eternal life with God once he could partake of the tree of life. It was, a, it was a garden that was beautiful, and it was also a garden that was meant to communicate to Adam the blessings which were in store for him, something which the Bible picks up on and it describe, uses to describe the salvation that we would have. Now, in verses 10 through 14, there is a description of four particular rivers, or really one river which then becomes four. You may think it's odd that there's such a, a long description in the middle of the narrative uh, of these rivers. Why is it that Moses has uh, included them? Well, there are a number of reasons for that. One, this is, again, a, a particular theme which is developed in the rest of the Bible, uh, which we will come to in a moment. One of the other major questions which is asked about these particular rivers is where are these rivers? Where is Eden? Uh, and this is um, particularly a question that's asked because uh, it's said to it's said to us by, by many, and this is right as far as it goes, that the Tigris, which is the third river that's mentioned in the set of four, though it's given a different name here, and the Euphrates, um, they've never had a common source. They, they, they never converge in a particular place where they have one river that then divides into two. And there were never four rivers that were, uh, that were coming off of one, ri uh, one particular river where two of them were the Tigris and the Euphrates. So where is this place and did it ever exist? Well, of course it did exist. And the reason why we can no longer find it is because... This is a description of the world before the flood, which was a world which was vastly different than this one. Think of it. Uh, if the, the flood could create things as magnificent as the Grand Canyon and uh, reorder then, of course, all of the routes of, of water that were in that particular area, then of course, we would not expect all the rivers to flow in exactly the same ways, or really we would, we would be shocked if any river flowed in the same way as it did before the flood. Notice, if you remember, the Apostle Peter in his second epistle actually describes the difference between the, the world before the flood and the world after the flood as the world which was and the world which is. They were vastly different in this, in this regard. The world was greatly changed by the flood, and so we, can never, we cannot hope uh, to find... Um, where these the, these rivers were because the, the, the landscape has so drastically changed. But the more important question that we can ask is why are these rivers included? Why are these rivers included in the description of Eden? Well, we have we've read a couple of passages in the course of this service which indicate the development, the, the biblical theological development of these themes throughout uh, the course of the Bible. 
the reason why there is a river which divides into four is because God is indicating that all life flows from Eden. All life comes out of Eden. Eden is the fountain and the source of all life. And it is always connected in the Bible subsequently to the place of worship. Life flows out of the worship of God. And so in the beginning, there is a a set of waters that flow out of Eden. But then in Psalm 46, it flows out of the city of God, out of Zion. And then in Ezekiel 47, which is a description of the, of the temple in its most ideal setting, it's, it's a picture of the complete building of the church given in Old Testament imagery. There is a water, a, a, a set of waters, a river which flows from the sanctuary itself, which gives life to everything, eventually even flowing into the Dead Sea, so named because there can be no life, and giving life even there. All life flows from the place where man has fellowship with God. This was the original description of Eden, and it's always held out to the people of God as the goal. We are always meant to get back to the place where where man dwells with God, which is counted as the fountain of all life with God himself. This is why then in Revelation 22, after uh, John says that uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is the tree of life. He also says there is the river of life because the trees of Eden cannot be separated from the river itself as well. These things are developed in the Bible to show us what it means to be saved from our sins. We can, any salvation that is anything less than being restored to fellowship with God in Eden is not the salvation which the Bible holds out to us. And, and again, notice in it, particularly in Ezekiel 47, then the importance of the sanctuary. Eden is replaced, so to speak, by the sanctuary itself. And that's because the sanctuary is meant to teach the people of God of Eden. The worship of God's people, the gathering together, is the fountain of life. But the third aspect of Eden that we have to consider is considering Eden as a mountain. Now, you may ask, where is this in the text? We have very clearly in verse 9 the description of Eden and its trees. And then verses 10 through 14, we have a description of the rivers. Verse 15 ends Uh, the description of Eden, where does it say in the text that Eden is a mountain? Well, if you were to have a river, a a source of a river, which flows out and then divides into four, the, the source of the river must be, of course, at a higher elevation than everything else to which it flows. If Eden is to be the source of life for all of the world and everything flows off of it, then Eden itself must be a mountain. And this is, in fact, what uh, the prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 28. When he describes, uh, when he describes even uh, the privilege and uh, the fall of the king of Tyre, he says this, You were in Eden, the garden of God. So Eden's a garden. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. 
You were the anointed cherub who covered who covers. I established you. You were on the mountain of God. Now you have to ask then, was he in Eden or was he on the mountain of God? Well, he was in both places because they are in fact the same place. Eden was a mountain. It was a mountain with a garden with the rivers of life flowing from it. Now, why is it important to recognize that Eden was a mountain? Well, because this is another one of the themes which, is, which are developed throughout the scriptures. God always meets with man on a mountain. This was true uh, even with, with Noah. The ark comes to rest on a mountain. Noah offers sacrifices to God on the mountain. And all of life, just like in Eden, flows out of the ark on the mountain. God then meets with his people later on Mount Sinai. Then he meets with his people again and chooses to set his name on another particular mountain, Mount Zion. And then we are told that in the, the New Testament worship of God, that we have access to God and fellowship with him in the heavenly Mount Zion. God always meets with his people on a mountain. And this is even, again, what's the temple and the tabernacle were supposed to indicate. They were supposed to be a picture, a visible representation of the mountain of God. This is, and there are very clear parallels. When, when Moses received the instructions to the tabernacle, they very much paralleled the revelation of God that he received on Mount Sinai. The tabernacle was supposed to be a mobile representation of the mountain of God. Because God always meets with man on a mountain. And so when we see this, the description then of Eden in these three ways, it's, it's trees, it's rivers, and it being on a mountain, all of them are freighted with heavy theological, um, th- theological, uh, uh, heavy theological uh, things that we must consider. The, the trees show that we are to have life with God forever. The rivers show that that Eden itself, that the the sanctuary where we meet with God, is the source of all life. And Eden being a mountain and its development throughout all of the Bible shows that we are to have fellowship with God forever. This is the beautiful picture that we have of Eden. This is the particular place that God has created for us to dwell with him forever. And it's described in such detail that you might see its glory and that you might always strive to be restored to this particular blessing, that you would be with God. And so if we were then to ask the question then, why is it that the Lord Jesus Christ has come? Why is it that he has come to the earth? It's because there is no other way for us to have fellowship with God restored to us. This very clearly from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is the purpose for which God created man. God created man to have fellowship with him, both in on the holy time that he had set apart for this particular function, and in the special place which God had prepared for man to dwell with him, like a bridegroom prepares a place for his bride. And so then the question really of the rest of the Bible is, Who shall ascend? Who has the right to ascend the mountain of God? Who has the right to be restored to the privileges of the tree of life? 
Who has a right to partake of the life which flows from the sanctuaries and the river of God? Who has a right to all of these things? And the answer of the scriptures is this. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has that right. And only those who are in him. And those who are in him have even more, even more blessings than what Adam had in the garden. And so may God grant us the grace always to strive after these blessings, to rejoice in the foretaste of these blessings which we have as we meet together week in and week out, as we even now ascend the mountain of God and have fellowship with him. And may God grant us the grace finally to reach our destination and be with him forever in the place that he has prepared for us. Let's pray. Lord, as we see this beautiful description of the garden which you had planted for fellowship with us, Lord, what a a wonderful picture it is of glory and how we long to be back having all of these blessings confirmed to us, which we know will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ returns from heaven and restores to us these things, and even confirms for us even better things. Lord, grant us the grace to see these blessings, to know even what a blessing it is to have fellowship with you now, and help us, O Lord, to to live in the light of this glory, and always to be seeking to have fellowship with you. For we ask in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.